Welcome back to another episode of Queering Daisy. I'm your one and only host, Priya. This week, I had the pleasure of chatting with D Loco Kid, better known as D Lo, who I am a big fan of, but also you may have heard of and seen in shows like Sense8 or Transparent. He's a great comedian, actor, and writer. And this week, we chat about how he found his way in comedy and how his identity as a queer, trans, Tamil, Sri Lankan American influenced his journey and his work. So without further ado, I introduce to you Dilo. Thank you, Dilo, for coming onto the show today. I have been a longtime admirer of your work and your presence in the South Asian LGBTQ community. So I'm really excited to talk to you. So, you know, you've been in so many projects. I mean, I don't even know where to start, but you've been in part of, you know, Transparent and Sense8 and all these things that that are, are a little more mainstream, but also in the South Asian LGBTQ community, you have been kind of this ever-present, amazing, comedic person. Can you talk a little bit just about your journey of how you found this line of work and what it's been like for you as a queer trans person navigating that? I looked and acted, behaved everything like a dude and and nobody tripped because I was always the funny person. Mm. And my, my father's a joker, so I knew what power comedy had. You know, I knew that everybody respected the person I made, everybody laughed. So I used comedy as sort of my way of taking control and power at a young age. I probably wouldn't have had that analysis at that age, but, you know, looking back, I definitely know that that was where I found myself. When I was older, I was really drawn to spoken word. I remember seeing MTV Unplugged with Reggie Gaines doing spoken word. And I had already been writing rhymes because I was so influenced by the MCs of that time. Public Enemy, Queen Latifah, the list goes on and on. So when I heard Reggie Gaines, I was like, that's what I do. And... It was like a couple of years later, you know, just then I would go to college and there was a poetry read. I helped kickstart or re-kickstart. And I started doing poetry and I started doing poetry in social justice communities as well. There weren't very many South Asians who were politically active. I think it was me and one other guy. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember, you know, not even having South Asian friends. And I didn't. Like, you know, being Sri Lankan, we never saw ourselves as South Asian. We just saw ourselves as Sri Lankan. And so I remember there used to be a gang of South Asians near Kirkhoff Coffee Shop at UCLA. And I remember I would walk by and I could just hear the hushes, like, you know, is that person one of us? Like, type of thing. But what was awesome was that my homies were Chicanos, Filipinos, Black folks. And so all of those communities had either social justice organizations or arts organizations that were having events all the time. So I was performing poetry and also playing instruments, whether that was keys or percussion. So then when I left UCLA, I came out to my parents like two months prior to UCLA and they didn't disown me, but it was definitely not the jam. So mm-hmm. when I left, I had a, an opportunity to work with I was already working with the Artist Network in Los Angeles, especially around police brutality. And so when it was time to graduate, I got on the project in New York with the Artist Network over there around the International Day of Art for Mumia Abu Jamal. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where everything started morphing. So I had 
always thought that I was going to be a music producer. Mm. And spoken word and poetry and hip-hop was just something that I did because that was my creative outlet. Yeah. But once I moved to New York, I started getting gigs, like left, right, and center, and they were actually paying gigs. <laughs> so I was just trying to maintain that as much as I could, and it was a great time for me. Even though like things with my family went on point, it was a great time for me as an artist because I was also being inspired by New York artists, and that's how my own work started morphing. I was very inspired by theater artists, Susanna Cook is somebody who plays a really strong role in my artistic growth at that time because she was doing these brilliant plays. She's brilliant satire, comic writer, and I was involved in her plays. And then at that time, I was also doing a lot more of the university college circuit. And I would preface my poems with these stories that were so funny to other people. And so then... Eventually, people started calling me to come to their event just to do comedy. Um, <laughs> so it was kind of by accident that right. it happened. But I always felt like theater and comedy gave me more breadth to work with mm-hmm. because it was, you know, spoken word and hip hop and all that. Social justice stuff is so heavy when it's in poetry and spoken word. Like that was like my raw feeling. Right. And I think comedy was my way of, you know, making people laugh around things that were harder to laugh about, but because I was laughing about it, it made it easier. And, you know, creates release in the room for everybody. I know the heaviness that you're talking about, and that's definitely true, especially in activist forums or rooms, but your work has landed with so many people. I wonder, do you feel as an artist that difference of doing something really serious and raw versus, you know, something that's a little lighter or funny? Do you think you're having the same impact? Is that cathartic for you or cathartic for the people that are listening as well? Yeah, I think that, you know, when it's just stand-up, it might have the same feeling as when somebody takes a dope piece that was crafted well, you know? Mm-hmm. You just get your snaps or you get your claps, you know? Yeah. But when you get somebody who's a writer in spoken words or poetry that really knows to take you on the highs and the lows, then it's not just the snaps you're getting, you're really getting like, damn, that was a powerful piece or damn, that was beautiful or do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. And when I do my solo shows, I'm not just doing what I do in the club or stand-up venues. I'm doing like a mixed bag of storytelling, stand-up, and I may write things a little bit more poetically so that the sentiment is greater felt. But where I feel I have the most impact, like the most, most impact is when I'm doing my solo show. When I'm doing my comedy, I know I have impact, but it's probably not as deep as it is when I'm doing my solo. Why do you think that is? What is the difference for you? I feel like when I'm doing my solo work, I'm in charge of taking people on an emotional journey. Mm-hmm. When I'm doing stand-up in a club, I feel like I'm in charge of making people laugh and think. And yes, the same applies to the solo shows. Like, of course, I'm making them laugh and think. But I am so much in charge for, like, I got an hour and ten minutes. I am crafting a story. I am rehearsing the story. I am 
jumping all over the dance stage. I am learning my blocking and how it impacts the way that I say it. So that's why I say I had the most impact in my solo shows than I do on the comedy stages. But do I have no impact? No. Like, I think that just to see a trans brown person is impactful in and of itself in a comedy club. Oh, just absolutely. To see somebody talk about, you know, what it is like to be perceived as a cisgender male in this world and the observations therein, that's powerful. The commentary on how people have been socialized, their behavior, when it speaks as only masculine and only feminine, like just the absurdities of the world through a trans person's life is impactful. But I'll just be honest, I do know that I have a greater shining power when I do my solo show. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that is more impactful. I think it's more real. I I also just think the audience is different. You know, the people that come to your solo shows versus, you know, someone in a club coming to see you do stand up, they're at a different place or they're ready for a different message or they're looking for something different, maybe. Yeah, Yeah. I think that audience and venue and all of that is different. Well, for you, I mean, having done both and even more than that, what is your main audience and how do you then tailor that based on what form of art you're doing? Well, I used to get asked this question even when I was doing mostly spoken word. And I feel like, you know, every single time it's different. I kind of gauge from the audience who I'm talking to within the first half minute so that I can figure out how I'm going to do the rest of my set. Right. If I'm in front of a mostly South Asian crowd, I might go heavier on the queer stuff. Mm -hmm. If I'm mostly in front of a straight cis audience, I might also do the same. If I'm with a whole bunch of people of color, I might tell the story of my family a little bit differently. It just really depends on what I feel the audience might expect from me and either meeting that or going the other direction. You know what I'm saying? Right. Kind of like all that needs to be gauged in that first minute. Right. And, and you know, it also depends. Like, sometimes people are like, keep this family friendly because we have kids in the audience. Like, it just depends <laughs> on what the venue, what the place is, like what, what energy I'm supposed to be coming into the moment. Well, how do you bring that energy and bring, you know, all your identities and, and not feel like you're leaving, you know, something at the door or or playing out, you know, something that they expect to see just because you're brown or just because you're trans? Like, how do you as a performer carry your full self and all your identities in the work that you do? It's a great question. I think that, you know, I'm still always asking myself that question. Mm-hmm. And I think that sometimes whatever I'm writing at the moment might meet that question head on and feel like everything that I'm saying encompasses everything that I am. Mm-hmm. But most often, it just really depends on what I'm choosing to write about. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one of my last shows, I talked about a situation that I had heard about in the news, and that does, is not necessarily queer, trans, anything to do with my life even, yeah. or even pertaining to my life, it was an observation of something that happened in the news that had very much, that had everything to do with race mm. and anti-black racism mm-hmm. in particular. So I think that my lens is how I bring all of me into a role. But even if I were to tell you, 
when I walk into a room, it's me all day, every day. It doesn't matter because it's my lens. Right, right. right. I, I'm still lying to a certain degree because there's been moments where I have felt like, oh man, I wish I had said this. And then with that realization, I felt like I sold myself out. Mm. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. But that's also this thing that happens with a lot of artists who are social justice aligned, right? Yeah. There's this pressure to be everything all the time. And I think it's really unfair, but at the same time, I want more artists to feel that response. Right. <laughs> act like an idiot all the time whenever they get in front of a big crowd. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But I feel like I'm, I'm doing the best that I can and with the best intention. And I, I'm thankful that now that I've learned things through my artistic career and I'm older now, my mindfulness around how I want to be in the space is greater. Or rather, my mindfulness might be the same, but how I respond to these ex- expectations from self, that's different. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like in my own life, being South Asian, being queer, I identify as a cis woman, but I dress masculine of center. When I walk into a room, there's a presumption of who I am and what is about to come out of my mouth. And yes, that's a lot of pressure. But I do also find that, especially in, let's say, like South Asian spaces, you know, if they're not queer friendly spaces, I find myself channeling a certain part of me and kind of blocking off another part. And I think as a South Asian LGBTQ person, that pressure itself, even beyond coming out, everyone's always fascinated with, you know, coming out and our families and stuff like that. But I think carrying ourselves with all our identities into different places and being able to channel a certain part of that is a skill that we begrudgingly learn rather fast. And I think that's something I grapple with now, even after years and years of being out is, you know, the pressure of that, of being the one to have to navigate everyone else's kind of conveniences and not wanting to offend or provoke, but also being like, hey, I am just me. And if I'm not being a certain part of me at all times, is that unfair to me and not only to other people, you know? Right. Yeah, it's all exhausting, huh? Yeah, it's very exhausting. (laughs) It's also fun to test the waters. Like if I go to a South Asian wedding, I might, you know, say something a little undersided to some auntie or to something and just kind of gauge their response. It's also fun sometimes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Playing with that is also the reprieve we get. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I, I know that for me, like even though the burden is heavy, I'm happy to carry some of it. You know what I'm saying? And I'm happier when I know that other artists are carrying that because the world has always had its heavy dose of shittiness. Mm-hmm. But especially now, there's like an energy in the world that is out to annihilate many communities. And I'm grateful that a lot of our mainstream artists are waking up a little bit. Do you think South Asian and maybe South Asian LGBTQ representation itself have gotten better in media? I mean, I've talked about this on the podcast before, but we've seen cis male South Asian artists like Aziz Ansari, like Kamel Nanjiani. Do you think that there's enough representation? Do you feel like it has to be mainstream or is it enough that it's growing in our own communities? I think that having mainstream representation is important, but that's only because of the platform that it, or space it takes them, you know? Mm-hmm. Do I feel like I'm happy with who's out there? Yeah, but could there be more? Yes. You know, because every single person who's out there with every, you know, let's say we have three major 
writer performers out there. And I know that there are a crap ton more, but I'm trying to make a point here. Yeah. So let's say we have Aziz, Mindy, and uh, Kumail, right? Mm-hmm. There have already been huge problems with, with each three, each of them. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. So while they're out there, like, why don't we get more in the mix so that we can show what you know, different folks look like, behave like, so that we can learn to hold the complexities better. Do you hear what I'm saying? Yeah, like, definitely. That like we're we're so much like, more than these like one or two or three representations. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's what fascinates me about your work, because I think I've seen your work in so many different spaces, like we've talked about in the more serious venues and then in some of the more lighter venues. But also, you know, you touch upon family, you touch upon, you know, your parents and and you touch upon being Sri Lankan and and you play into that at times and then you step away from that at times. And I think I find that fascinating because it shows in itself that, you know, as a person, you hold all these identities and they're so multifaceted that one space or one performance can't even begin to capture that. Right, right. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, I would love to talk a little bit about just your your journey within the South Asian community, both, you know, being Sri Lankan and then also in the larger South Asian community, what that has been like. You know, being a trans person, you know, beyond coming out, what, what has that been like to navigate for you and to hold that cultural side of yourself? So, um, I grew up in a really thick Sri Lankan community mm-hmm. where every brown kid that I growing up up until I went to college was Sri Lankan. Mm-hmm. And I actually did have one Gujarati friend and because her mother knew Tamil, she... Mm-hmm ended up hanging out with all the Sri Lankans and she even thought she was Tamil for the longest. So mm-hmm. it was <laughs> when you're kids you don't you don't know you just think, oh I do anything. <laughs> so so when I got to UCLA and I was like, Oh, there's Indians over there like I they were so like they were the other to me. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? Like they were as foreign to me as like Asian Americans were. Yeah. And especially because at my school I was more friendly with like all all I went to a, a Catholic high school. That must have been Catholic. super easy for you. <laughs> oh yeah. But see how we survived it was that all the people of color banded together. Oh, so that's we were awesome. all each other's friends. Yeah. So, so <laughs> you know, growing up with, you know, not that there were many black people or Chicanos, but the ones that were there we all were tight. Yeah. So this is how I grew up in Filipinos. So when I got to UCLA, I didn't it wasn't on my radar to go and be around South Asians. It was more important for me to be around the people who were art based and social justice rooted and who loved hip hop. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Right. Right. So that was what was on my mind at that time. I was young. I was I didn't really care <laughs> who you were as long as you were, you know, in the hip hop and and R and B and and we could hang out and, you know, yeah. Shoot the shit, you know. Yeah. So I remember it was my last year in college and I was taking a one ninety nine with Anibal Perez Comalo, who is a professor, worked out at a labor center at UCLA. And she told me about a conference called Beige Pardesh, which 
took place in Toronto. Mm-hmm. I said, you should really go there. And I said, I thought, I'm not going to go perform in front of South Asians. They won't like me. They're yeah. weird. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. they already, like, look at me weird on camera, right. you know? So I was like, I'm not going to do that to myself. I'm not going to go and apply for Like, they just do it. Like, they're not like that. They'll, they'll really appreciate your work. And I said, no, I'm not going to do it. Mm-hmm. So she convinced me to do it. <laughs> and I was like, oh, God, I'm going to go perform in Canada in front of a bunch of Indian people. And I got there, and it was like, it was one of the most, it was the deepest thing for me ever because it wasn't just that they were South Asian. There were so many Sri Lankan Tamil people there who were like activists and organizers and mm. artists and and queer. Yeah. Like it was queer run. So for me, I performed and I, I saw like aunties from my, you know, like Toronto or Scarborough has one of the largest Tamil Sri Lankan populations. The world. So there was a group of older Tamil Sri Lankan aunties that were brought in to do like a skit, you know, because they belong to an organization. And that should blew my mind. I'm like looking <laughs> at these aunties and just tripped out. Wow. You know, that was just wild for me. And so it was just through that. And then by the time I got to New York, they had a similar gathering called Diasporatics. And I got in on that too. And I was kind of sinked into a community that was both, like when I got to New York, I was part of a, my arts community through the Artist Network. But then at the same time, I was meeting South Asians. Like they even had an organization called South Asians Against Police Brutality. Oh, wow. Then there was Jay Shree's South Asian Women's Creative Collective. Right. Then there was Diaspora. You know what I'm saying? And yeah. like... I was just blown away. I was like, oh my God, these are my people. And I'm still, you know, a little bit like, you know, how close is too close because at the end of the day to me, I've always been looked at weird by Indian people. Yeah. But, you know, slowly and slowly these folks, like to this day, some of those folks that I met 20 years ago are like my nieces. Like, we go hard still, you know? Yeah. I remember going to Daisy Q, what, probably six, seven years ago and finding like, oh, wow, like not only do we exist and I had been in Salga spaces and Satorang spaces before, but to see like a worldwide meddling together of all of these amazing brown people from different facets of the world, like to just realize that that even existed, the power of those spaces was incredible. But looking back now on your journey and and looking back on those spaces, like what would your biggest piece of advice be to your younger self and maybe even to young brown queer people out there? I know everyone's journey is different, but maybe if you if you can talk a little bit about what you would tell your younger self and maybe what you would relate as general advice to people. I would say this to my younger self is don't be so hard on yourself. Mm -hmm. I would also tell him, you know who you've always been, so don't hide just to just because you think that it's going to get you by in mm. life. Just do you, be you. It's going to hurt sometimes, but it's going to hurt less in the long run. I would also tell him to not drink as much. <laughs> <laughs> we could all use that one. <laughs> yeah. 
But you know what? I would say this also to older brown queer foundations mm-hmm. is that a lot of us didn't have support in the way that we have support now. Right. So if we don't have, if we don't stop and forgive ourselves for where we were at back then and what we were doing with very little, then we're always going to carry this guilt and shame with us. Like we were doing the best we could. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. So with that, I would say that to everybody, like you're doing the best you can. You know, even when you think you could be doing better, you're not pushing yourself hard to do it because you're fatigued, you know? The weight of the world already, and then on top of that, like lack of family support and lack of genuine connectively vulnerable we don't know how to walk with integrity mm. you know all of that is so like if we don't forgive ourselves for where we came from we're just going to be carrying that wow yes snaps to all of that i mean i don't even have anything to add on top of that um can i ask i mean just out of curiosity you don't have to a- answer this but i wondered yeah. d loco kid where did that come from so d my name came from my mother calling me Dillo growing up. Oh, wow. And so when I started doing more hip-hop and, like, with freestyle, I just switched it to Dillo because it was easier to rhyme. Yeah. You know yeah. Um, D-Lo, my opening was Reload, check his D-Lo. <laughs> you, know, you know, like... Yeah, it flows way that, better. That was just a lot, yeah. Yeah. So that's where Dillo came from. And then... I grew up like I I don't I don't know if this is me appropriating or doing what, but like I grew up with a lot of Spanish speakers. Mm. Like I'm in Southern California. I grew up Hell in Southern yeah. California. Like I'm ashamed that I don't know Spanish. Oh my god, same. I I grew up there. My dad is still like we took we had took Spanish in high school, and he was still like, "How do you not know that?" <laughs> like I never yeah. practiced it. <laughs> yeah, no, same thing, same thing. So, but everybody always used to call me crazy because I was crazy. <laughs> like, I was always, like, doing... So then, when it was time to, like, sort of find a, a tag brand... Uh, that worked so out. Then I got, <laughs> yes. So then when I started looking at a website, all the D-Loco was all taken up. Mm. So I said D-Loco kid, and then I just kept it. Yeah. That's, that's kind of awesome, though. I love that story. I'm glad I asked. <laughs> Yeah. No, I know that. Actually, you might be the first person who's ever had Oh, my God, yes. Uh, in any interview. <laughs> they, yes. They always just ask me where D-Loco came from. Ah. I knew that there had to be something. If it was D-Loco and then Kid, I was like, whoa, there's got to be, it's got to be good. And it was good. It was a good yeah. story. <laughs> what can you talk about that you're working on now and where can they follow you online yeah. and stuff? That's Also, when is Sensei coming back? Just saying. <laughs> oh my goodness, this is the last one. Oh man. The last thing. So, you know, I think it's going to be coming out soon, but it's, it's the last. That's the last hurrah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thank you, Dilo. I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to add that I wasn't able to touch upon. No, it was wonderful talking with you. And. I hope we get to meet in person. Yeah, definitely. Um, I live in New York, obviously now, but the next time you're in New York, I'm definitely going to see you. 
Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much, Dilo. Bye. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of Queering Daisy. If you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to rate and subscribe on iTunes to help us spread the word and make sure you get the latest episodes right to your phone every Wednesday. If you have any questions, comments, feedback, or know someone who should be featured on Queering Daisy, please drop us an email. Thanks again for listening.